Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 3, verses 10 through 21, and the passage is printed on page 6 of your bulletin if you'd like to read along. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, become like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I must press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have told you before and tell you now again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Thank you, Catherine. Well, it's good to be back in the pulpit here after a two-week break, and that also means that we're going to be jumping right back in to our study of Philippians. Um, that also means we're going to be uh, doing Q&A today, as we normally do, and whether if you're new to our community or if you've been here before, uh, feel free to be thinking of questions that come to mind, or even write them down. Uh, we love having some dialogue about the teaching um, afterwards that we might learn with honesty and with depth and truth. But let's first pray and ask that God would help us and bless this time. Let's pray. Father, we're asking that you would be unto us now a father, that you would protect us uh, because uh, we need protection. We need our souls uh, to be opened wide in a way that we can receive more of gospel truth. Uh, we need your love to bring us more of your son. We need your spirit to give us power to not only hear, but to believe the things that are true. And so we're coming to you in all honesty, just broken. Some of us distracted. Some of us with big, heavy burdens on our backs. And we're praying that in some way that you would come and speak to us in a way that we'd most deeply need, which might be in an unexpected way. But please do your work. Do your work, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name. Amen.
It's good to set goals, isn't it? It's good to set goals. Goals can help us make progress. And so, for example, as the summer winds down, I don't know about you, but I'm beginning to look at the fall as a time when we might begin to plan for the coming year, the coming ministry year, looking at our church's fall future and thinking about what goals might we set for ourselves there. Paula and myself, we've been talking about having a little time as a family to talk through what are we expecting the next several months, the next year to look like, basically thinking and talking a little bit about goals, even personally. I don't know about you. With September around the corner, maybe you have some personal goals that you're tinkering with. I myself have a few. One of them involves pos maybe a, a gym. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, haven't committed yet, uh, intentionally ambivalent at this time, haven't set a goal yet, but I'll tell you, one thing that is motivating me uh, was a time just a few weeks ago when I was with my daughter and we were sort of just slouching on the couch together and she's leaning on me as she will at times and at one point she starts poking at one of my uh, stomach rolls and she turns to me and she exclaims in all seriousness and with a little bit of astonishment daddy do you have boobies down there <laughs> and so I'm thinking uh, yes um, it may be time to set some goals uh, time to hit the gym, perhaps. I don't know what your goals are today. Uh, maybe it's been so tough, you're just trying to get through the day. Uh, maybe it's to build and repair a broken relationship. Uh, maybe it's to find work and to get a job. Maybe it's t to take life to the next level, however you define that. Uh, maybe what's most pressing in on you is uh, something very large, changing the world, eradicating poverty. Uh, it's worth considering though for a moment, and maybe in our time together, maybe throughout today, what are your goals? What is it that really drives you? Not just the stuff you'd put down on paper, but what really gets you up in the morning and what really moves you through the day. What are your real goals. You see, because as we look at this passage closely, what begins to emerge is Paul's singular passion. Uh, you might say Paul's goal in life. And he models it for us, he talks about it to us, and he gives us something for ourselves to aspire to and it's simply this, the goal of having and knowing more of Jesus. More of Jesus. He talks about it in a sort of terms of a, of a present passion. He says it in those first verses. Verse 10, I want to know Christ. And of course, by using the language of knowing Christ, he doesn't just mean I want to know facts about Christ, I want to have read a book about Christ. But you know, even from the phrases he uses right afterwards, he's talking about knowing the power of 
Christ's resurrection, spiritual power. He wants to experience something of this person, Jesus. And he talks about participating in Jesus' suffering, the, the wounds and the sorrow to know Christ even through his trials. He's talking about a deeply experiential knowledge, not just a head or cognitive knowledge. I want to know Christ. This is my goal, my chief passion. Have you said that to yourself recently? Mm, I want to know Jesus. Because, of course, Paul has encountered the Christ who was the Christ of the cross. The phrase that we see in verse 18 when Paul refers to the cross of Christ. This is, of course, the Son of God who though was owed nothing but glory and eternal praise, all beauty and lavished favor from the Father forfeited it all, assumed the form of a human being, fully man and fully God, to stand in my place, your place, because we were helpless to save ourselves, helpless to change ourselves, no matter what our good intentions, not able to get it right, to love right, to live justly right, to think of others and care for neighbor rightly. No, because our souls were infected by this thing called sin, the selfishness of our souls deep within. And so Jesus takes the just punishment for those sins, for all my sins, past and present and future, dying in my place, dying the death that I should have died, paying the price that I should have paid but could not have paid and would not have paid. This Jesus who loved Paul so, who loves me so, who lavishes his truth and power and mercy in untold fashion into our lives. And this is what the apostle has experienced. That he would say, that Jesus, the crucified Savior, I want to know him. I want to know his heart. I want to know what makes him tick. I want to know his character. I want to know his personhood. I want to be like him. I want to carry his life within mine. I want to even suffer like him. Have you prayed that and longed for that lately? I want to suffer like Jesus. It's a present passion of Paul's, but it's also this goal of knowing more of Jesus is also a future ambition as well. You'll notice how many times in this short passage Paul has this forward-looking orientation to the things that he says. He talks about his death. He talks about attaining to the resurrection from the dead in verse 11. He talks about this goal that he's pressing on to take hold of in verse 12. He's talking about winning the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus in verse 14. In verse 21, talking about the power that God has given that enables Christ to bring everything under his control, transforming even our physical bodies 
one day when Jesus returns so that they will be like his Christ's glorious body. In other words, with so many words and images, Paul is talking about the glorious future of this world and the people of Christ. That he's going to make all things right. He's going to disinfect your soul of all sin and selfishness one day. Can you imagine it? You tired of being self-centered? One day the work will be complete. You tired of brokenness, mental brokenness, emotional hurt and woundedness? You just tired of it? One day, his mending will be complete. You tired of your body falling apart? Of people in your life dying and being gone? Of chronic disease or that pain that you carry around day to day? One day, your body will be all right. Made to be like his glorious body. But what I want to point out here is Paul is not just talking about a future in the abstract, great as this glory might be, but please notice how Jesus centered even his vision of the future is. He doesn't just talk about heaven in verse 14. He talks about being called personally by God heavenward in Christ Jesus. Because the greatest prize awaiting you in heaven is him. And he doesn't just talk about the renovation of the world to being a perfect paradise, though that is true. When he talks about our bodies being transformed, he says not just that we're going to have indestructible bodies, he says so that they will be like his glorious body. Everything is about knowing more of Jesus and embodying literally more of Christ. I mean, he's just, just bonkers about his Savior. I mean, you get this, almost this sense of fanaticism? <laughs> or can we just call it a singular passion? What a life ought to look like, reasonably ought to look like, if it's changed by the grace of God. If the story of the cross is true for you, this is how you should talk and think and desire and pray. As one commentator put it, Paul's goal setting was centered on the person of Jesus Christ. It involved the pursuit of personal knowledge of Christ. Fellowship with him was his passion. Anything less can hardly be described as Christian goal setting or life management. So the simple question, of course, is do you have this goal as your own? Do you want Jesus like this? If you've tasted of the glory of his grace, are you hungering for more? Are you using this intense language that Paul uses where he says, I, I want to press on to take hold or to grip or seize or grab a hold 
of Jesus. I want to, it, it's like running a race, Paul says, where I want to win the prize, cross the finish line, make it to the end. This is how focused one's soul might be when it's transformed by the grace of Jesus. It sounds basic, doesn't it? And it is, but how often our lives, even in our spiritual or religious pursuits, can be centered around other goals. For example, how easily in the name of pursuing Jesus or even just general religiosity, deep down inside, our real goal is personal happiness. I don't really want to know Jesus. I just want to know Jesus insofar as he makes me happy or fulfilled. And of course, the way you know whether that's your goal is how do you respond when he doesn't give you moment-to-moment -moment happiness. Rage! You owed me! This isn't what I bargained for. You're showing your true goal. Happiness. Fulfillment. For some, it's just the feeling of mature, being mature. The feeling of maturity. For others, maybe it's pursuing the things of God to get my parents off my back. Or maybe it's to impress a girl or a guy, get a girlfriend. Maybe it's, uh, I want to do this basically to teach my kids good morals. Or is it, dear friends, to pursue Christ for himself? To know him, to love him, to the end. It's the first thing we learn in this passage. Paul showing us what it looks like to live in light of the goal. The goal of seeking and knowing more of Christ. But secondly, what we find in this passage is a way of living in light of your citizenship. Uh, spiritual citizenship. What does that mean? Well, how do you live in pursuit of Jesus in this way? What does that even look like? Well, Paul gives us interesting language in verse 20 where he says our citizenship is in heaven. It echoes language that he's already used in chapter 1, verse 27. The word was there, but we didn't actually examine it closely when we studied chapter 1. There Paul says literally, live as a citizen in a manner worthy of the gospel. Citizenship. This word would have meant something special to Paul's audience. You see, because Philippi, the town in which this church to which he was writing was located, was a colony of Rome. Philippi was governed by Roman law. It was located on the Greek portion of the Mediterranean region, far from Rome, and yet its people, as a colony, dressed according to Roman customs. They used Latin, the official Roman language in official documents. The architecture of Philippi, we have evidence of this from archaeological digs, was Romanesque. Uh, and the people of Philippi, we know, had the privilege of being counted as Roman citizens. So Paul was addressing a people who lived in one place, but who were citizens of another. Uh, they lived in Philippi, but they had the identity, the lifestyle, 
and loyalty of people from Rome. And so Paul uses this idea to talk about a Christian's spiritual citizenship as members of the kingdom of God. You see, Christians are people who live in one place here, but belong to another, the kingdom of God. Where lifestyle and character is shaped by your highest sources of identity and allegiance. Christians are called to be foreigners, in fact, spiritually speaking, here in this world, even strangers in this world. Their true home being with Christ. And you can understand, uh, if you're an immigrant, you probably are clicking right into this idea much more naturally and easily. It's one of the reasons why it can be a great blessing to have a church full of immigrants. We have a lot to learn from your experience about this very spiritual dynamic that Paul is teaching us about. Spiritual citizenship. Residents of one place, but citizens of another. Where the deepest sources of my identity and highest loyalties are not found in this world. And you know what that starts to do if we work this out into practical life? Is it begins to help us to hold all other identity markers and all other loyalties a little bit more loosely. Because who I am is a citizen of the kingdom of God first and foremost. A people of the king, King Jesus, first and foremost. Even if I might in fact be a citizen of this country. Or I might be a person that can be described by all sorts of other kinds of identity markers. Whether gender or race or culture or family background or regional, geographical, cultural, or location, or whatever it might be, or your job, or the things that you do with your life, or your passions, or your ambitions. All these things are rightly things that make up our identity, but what's at the top of the list, friends? And let me just apply it to one simple area of life, and that is in the realm of politics. Because these days, as our electoral season is sort of uh, rising up and kicking up, it's especially important now more than ever for Christians to be holding most tightly and gripping most significantly to their identity as Christians and holding loosely to their identity as members of one political party or another. After it's true, as that simple, trite truism often goes, that God is neither a Democrat nor a Republican, is he? And that it stands to reason that the kingdom of God not being of this world, in fact being of heaven, ought to be so full of God's vision for what life ought to be and how human societies and communities ought to be run and how human life flourishes best 
Should we not expect that no one political ideology and no one political party would ever be able to perfectly embody and encapsulate all that God stands for? Wouldn't it stand to reason that though the kingdom of God transects and even transcends political party and ideology, that we shouldn't be surprised if certain things just don't fit. And that we're called therefore to have a much higher allegiance to God's kingdom than to the Green Party or to the Democratic Party or to the Republican Party or to any other political identity you might carry with you. To follow Jesus, to be a citizen of his kingdom, means to follow him wherever he takes you according to his kingdom values and priorities, even when that runs against the grain of political party platforms. In other words, there ought to be at times, dear Christians, as citizens of heaven, that you ought to find yourself in conflict with the parties and categories of the world. That if you're a Christian Democrat, times in which you're saying this piece of Democrat identity does not fit with my kingdom identity. And the same for a Republican Christian. Because after all, citizens of, heavens, of heaven are called to be strangers of this world. It means that we're called to living out a, a different sort of set of values. The way in which we use power. Jesus taught us clearly and lived it on the cross that in the kingdom of God, power is to be used for the purposes of service. The greatest is to be the least. The first is called to be the last. If that's true, that also means that we learn to value people that the world forgets. The marginalized small children, the disabled, people that have no voice to speak for themselves, valuing them even when it goes against the grain of normal cultural customs because your citizenship is in heaven. Or to learn how to use money and possessions in a totally different way. Being stewards of these things, not for self-gain, but the gain of other people. Where our money is seen as a blessing that we steward and then give away. That we are blessed to be a blessing. Because your citizenship is in heaven. Or when you meet people or deepen friendships and relationships, that because you're a member of God's kingdom, you start to want to be like the king, which means to put other people first. You enter into relationships, not just for my fulfillment, not just to meet my needs, but to meet yours. I'm here for you. And to say no to using people in relationships, whether emotionally or sexually, getting my fill and then discarding people, you don't do that because your citizenship is in heaven. 
where you start to live according to a completely crazy idea called grace. People being loved and valued, not because of what they deserve, but simply because you love them. Not because of what you, they give you in return, but simply because you see them as being made in the image of God. Or if they're a brother or sister in Christ, because your Savior bled for them too. And so you expend yourself in care and honor of that person, not expecting anything in return. Because that's how Jesus loved you when he poured out grace. You're beginning to live like your citizenship is in heaven. And you can see in doing so, it means at times life is going to be lonely in this world. I mean, we need to get used to it, friends, right? That sometimes to live as a citizen of heaven, to live as a follower of Jesus, should at times put you at odds with those around you. Not intentionally, not that you're asking for trouble or that you just want to be a weirdo or oddball, but sometimes you will be. To follow Jesus means at times to embrace loneliness in this world. Loyalty of G to Jesus sometimes makes you strange. We stop trying to live to be liked and stop trying to only blend in so as not to stand out. But rather to come as a church, as a community, as individuals to bring the influence of the kingdom to bear upon the world around us. Because to be a citizen of heaven means to bring more of heaven down to earth, doesn't it? The language here actually it does bring about old historic notions of Roman colonial patterns. Right? Where the colony of Philippi existed in part to bring more of Roman culture and influence to the Macedonian region in Philippi. And of course, the idea of colonies and colonialism is an, an unpopular set of ideas today, rightly so. They're closely linked to the subjugation of indigenous peoples. A lot of atrocities have been committed in the past in the name of creating colonies. The Bible isn't blessing here. Paul is not affirming here the imperialism of colonialism. It's simply borrowing language and categories from a concept that would have been familiar to the Philippians to help us understand what we're called to do and what we're called to be. And so can we just take this slice here out of that construct and say we're called to bring heavenly culture and heavenly influence here and now to the world around us. To bring the values of the kingdom into your workplace. Treating people as Jesus has treated you. To your relationships, to your neighborhood block, to your ANC meetings, to the stores and the way that commerce is done. 
in the way that you think about the neighborhood and the city and this world around us. We're called to be citizens that propagate a new movement of the kingdom, transforming this world to look and feel a little bit more like heaven. Thy kingdom come, we pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, living in light of our citizenship. Thirdly, this passage points us not only to living in light of the goal of knowing and having more of Jesus, not only living in light of our spiritual citizenship in heaven, but lastly, living in the grip of grace. We're finishing here. Living in the grip of grace. The grace of God dominates this passage beginning to end, but it stands out most poignantly in this one part here. Here in verse 12, when Paul says in the second half, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Is it where the apostle is saying that for all my passionate pursuit of Christ, for all my goal of knowing him, what defines this relationship is that one great event in which Christ took hold of me. In which Christ has come to know and set his love upon me. I'm simply trying to grab a hold of the one who's already grabbed a hold of me. Do you know, dear friends, that Christianity, genuine Christian faith, does not start with your hand and your grip of Jesus, but rather it starts with Jesus' hand and his grip on you. This, I think, is illustrated well by the 19th century British poet Francis Thompson, who wrote a wonderful, stirring poem called The Hound of Heaven, where he sort of biographically recounts the way in which Christ relentlessly chased after him. It's a long poem in which he sort of tells a story of himself almost like a fugitive running away from God, uh, living a life seeking satisfaction everywhere but never seeming to find it until satisfaction and salvation found him. This is how the poem begins. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him in underrunning laughter. Up vistaed hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those long, strong feet that followed, followed after. I wonder if any of you 
can tell a story like that. God chasing after you. Maybe now, maybe in the past. He goes on to talk about a life of futility and wandering and even sometimes pain. Jesus pursuing him while he himself continues to run until finally Jesus breaks in. Here's some words of Christ speaking in. All which I took from thee I did but take, not for thy harms, but just that thou might seek it in my arms. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. The story of the sinner saved by grace is a story of one who's been caught and found and loved by the hound of heaven. Held in the grip of grace. Not in the open-handed critique of what have you done for me lately. But a love that covers over all your rebellion and all your running and all the wiles of a fickle and wandering heart. John Stott, a wonderful teacher of the last generation, commented on this poem by Francis Thompson with these words. Why I am a Christian is due ultimately neither to the influence of my parents and teachers, nor to my own personal decision for Christ, but to the hound of heaven. That is, it is due to Jesus Christ himself who pursued me relentlessly even when I was running away from him in order to go my own way. And if it were not for the gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven, I would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. Who can say amen? He continues, Francis Thompson was expressing what is true of every Christian. If we love Christ, it is because he loved us first. If we are Christians at all, it is not because we have decided for Christ, but because Christ has decided for us. It is because of the pursuit of this tremendous lover. Do you know this Christ, dear friends? Do you know that you are not a Christian unless you've been arrested by this grace, interrupted by this Savior? Do you know that you cannot outdo God's own commitment to know you? To have you, to save you. That the Christian life is not primarily about your grip of God and His promises, but rather the story of His grip of you and a broken and fallen world, a grip that cannot, that will not let you go. Will you take the hand 
that already holds you. You live in the grip of his grace as citizens of heaven with the joyful goal and passion of knowing this Savior more and more and more until the day he returns and finishes his work. Will you love him so? Do you know he loves you so, dear friends? Let's pray. And so we long to see you in this way, to trust in you, because you have loved us and grabbed a hold of us. because we belong to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing some of this into our hearts.